you talk about being prolific uh and then mm-hmm. something you also said was you know how do you uh, well you recommend pre- producing a large body of work but then also not mm-hmm. not judgmentally and yeah. i think for most people those two things are very tied in um mm-hmm. what prevents them from producing work is a lot of judgments um you i think have also talked about uh, some of the guilt you've worked through um mm-hmm. so h- how do people uh be non-judgmental about their output I mean so I wouldn't say that I am not judgmental like I do think I'm somewhat perfectionist even now but the way I go about it is that I recognize the truth that um to make great work you have to make kind of stuff that's not great along the way and so you know it's almost my desire to make great work that allows me to make kind of and so I don't I don't believe in like just making like really low quality low effort stuff so you know like uh, my one of the first things i did i'm still doing was uh, when i start before i started work so around 2012 i just wanted to write a million words i thought that was a fun big challenge that i don't know how many people have done it's like not something lots of people have done and it seemed achievable to me and it seemed interesting and compelling and i didn't explicitly make a rule to myself that it had to uh, regarding what kind of standards it should have but like implicitly in my heart like i know that you know so if you want to write a million words you could just write the same five words over and over again right and that technically qualifies but like that's not what i wanted to do i wanted to at least consistently be making decent to good efforts right so it's like um the idea is that so i will kind i mean so in my head i'm saying i i sometimes say try your best but again different people have different ideas about what best means so i mean like you know if it's like if you're working out you know and you're, you're doing sprints or whatever and it's like people say oh you know give it like your 70 to 80% max effort right like don't run so fast that you absolutely exhaust yourself instantly and you can't go anymore well there are some instances where that makes sense to do but like generally speaking you want to optimize for volume and output like even in even in exercise like the conventional wisdom with regards to you know wanting to do more pull ups or wanting to run further faster it's like you want to maximize your volume of training so that your nerves and your what not kind of get aligned with that and the way to do that is kind of like 60 to 70% best effort and as much as possible and yeah so like i i am still judgmental about my work you know all none of my work is is meets my standards but i'm willing to put it out there anyway because the feedback that i will get from other people accelerates my own sensitivity so like the um, there's there's only so much you can do on your own and i think you know one of the fun kind of paradoxes or, or conflicts that I, i encounter sometimes is people think that if you're a public facing producer that you must think highly of yourself like like i mean it's not everybody thinks this but some people are like oh you know i don't want to publish stuff in public because i don't think so highly of myself that i think my words are worthy of sharing with people right i don't think of it that way i think of it as like i am a flawed imperfect person and my thoughts are you know imperfect and flawed to degrees that i cannot understand or know or realize and so i need my ideas to be exposed to the public so that people can tell me where i'm wrong 
and people can point out like what I'm missing. And so for me, publishing stuff publicly is a way of getting that feedback so that I can get better. So it's like, it's like a part of a process. So you have, you have to, to do this, you really do have to kind of think longer term. Because if you're just thinking about, oh, what's the best thing I can make now, then you can agonize about it. But if you think about it like procedurally, like in terms of what is the long-term process, then I think it's pretty, it becomes clear pretty quickly, at least it did for me. That And if you study how other people in the past have made stuff, like anybody who's made great work, like practically all of them were prolific in their in their production, they vary in terms of like, so some people, they write a lot of drafts and they only publish one book, right? But it's very rare that somebody, and you wouldn't even know it actually, right? Like if they, they might mythologize themselves and claim that, oh, this is my first book that I wrote in one sitting without editing or whatever. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe you are that kind of spectacular genius. But I think for most people, like you have to kind of fail and stumble on your way. And like, you know, you see like Da Vinci's sketches or you take filmmakers and you look at their early uh, footage and it's all like people have to go through a lot of crappy work to make good stuff. So it's kind of like that. It also seems to me that you need to have some kind of self-acceptance of your imperfection. Yeah, I mean, it's you accept what is imperfect now so that you can be less imperfect tomorrow basically and you know if you're if you're and the paradox again is like if you refuse to accept your current imperfection if you refuse to face the truth of that and you refuse to contend with it then you will remain that level of competence until you face it right so it's like i think ray dalio has this quote that something like all of my i don't know if he said troubles or problems or whatever he said like everything that I do well is a matter of me being able to face it, face the truth of it, honestly. And then everything that I don't do well is stuff that I didn't face the truth of, honestly. So it's like, if you're in denial or if you're averse to something because of perfectionism or fear or whatever, then it's never going to get better. So then you have to ask yourself, like, honestly, like, do you want to get better or do you want to feel comfortable? Basically, that's usually the, what it boils down to. Do you want to get better or do you want to feel comfortable? Yeah, like feel safe, right? Because there's no way to get better without getting uncomfortable. There's no way to get better without stretching yourself, pushing yourself. Same for, you know, again, if you want to lift more weights, if you want to run faster, you have to, you have to be okay, like pushing yourself and then you, you get tired and you get, your muscles get sore. Like you have to have that version of experience for whatever it is that you want to get better at. If you're like very, if you're serious about getting substantially better. You mentioned a few names, uh, Da Vinci, Ray Dalio. Who mm. do you feel has really influenced you in your journey, maybe creative journey, if you want to be more specific? I mean, lots of people. I, I, I worry that if I start listing names, I will leave out people who are influential but are not coming to mind right now. But, you know, off the top of my head, um, George Carlin is one example, I think. there was a, So when George Carlin died, Louis C.K. gave a eulogy and Louis C.K. said that what Carlin did was he would write a special over a year or whatever. He would put together all his jokes and then he would do the comedy special to record it. And after he recorded it, he would discard all the material and start completely from scratch. And he would do that year after year. And Louis C.K. Thought about, talked about how up until that point, he had not done that. And he had like kind of been hoarding the, the material that he had. I think he said, I had like one shitty hour 
of like whatever I had carefully put together over like several years and it wasn't really working. The audiences were like, you know, they kind of tepid laughter, like it's like average kind of response. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I sort of give up. Like I, I can't seem to make progress. And Carlin says that he throws everything out. And so he tried that and he tried throwing out his old material and starting from scratch. And um, he found that the thing that he tried next, um, it didn't, it didn't get like the, like a wide, broad kind of polite laughter, but like somebody in the back, like laughed very hard. And then he, <laughs> he felt, he, he felt that, you know, like there was something about that, that felt more real than his overly polished, overly practiced, rehearsed, predictable material. And so when you keep kind of making, making everything, tossing it out, starting over, making everything, tossing it out, starting over that, that kind of, develops your sensitivity in a way that you can't if you're attached to your existing product and your existing outcome. And yeah, I think that that resonated with me a lot. So Carlin would be one. Uh, yeah, Da Vinci would be another, I guess, just sheer volume. And he has kind of a ADHD mind, which I relate to. Who else? Um, I mean, my, my brain throws out examples of people who are prolific, but, you know, so I think of Asimov, but I don't actually read much Asimov. So it's like, it's almost like I like the idea of him more than I actually like him. So that's not super honest. Um, who else? Uh, a lot of musical artists, I think. And again, I usually like the idea of them more than I necessarily love their work. Like, uh, I like how David Bowie kind of, uh, again, I, I can't name you like 10 Bowie songs, like I can name like three or four, but I, I was at some point looking up like his career and his trajectory and how he like reinvented himself over and over again. And that's also kind of, I like the idea of that. Uh, other examples. On, so like on Twitter, there were a couple of accounts that I saw. One was uh, this guy called, I think, Grit Cult. Another was this guy called Ultimape, U-L-T-I-M-A-P-E. And the two of them were doing these very elaborate threads. And I'm like, oh shit, that looks awesome. I want to do my version of that. So that, that's a pretty straightforward and obvious kind of uh, direct influence. Um, what else? I, I'm looking around. <laughs> I like, um, so I, are you asking about like specifically about prolific examples or like more generally? Uh, you can answer in the general. Uh, so I like, I think I have an affinity for people who sort of managed to um, gather attention in a very skillful way and use it effectively. So Carl Sagan comes to mind as someone, so he was like a popularizer of science, right? Like during his time, he was, he managed to get a lot of people interested in science and he had a way of framing it that people felt was compelling. Um, Alan Watts is probably my one of my biggest influences. I discovered him pretty late. I discovered him in like 2015 or so. Like I was struggling at work and just feeling like life was very bleak and I was like overwhelmed, not sleeping enough and all those things. And uh, I listened to a bunch of his lectures on YouTube. I don't remember how I ended up there, but like, so he has all these lectures on you that are now on YouTube that are like an hour and a half, two hours long sometimes. And I would just put them on while doing the dishes. And he just had this kind of, you know, it was not what he said. There's never one specific, I, I don't know if there's any, there are like a few riffs here and there that are particularly good. But the value of Alan Watts is not what he says, but how he says it. So he has this very cheerful disposition and he, very cheeky. And he will be talking about like serious stuff. He'll be talking about like death and, and you know, um, futility and and but he'll be saying it you can hear him laughing while he's saying it and it's a very good natured cheerful laughter and it's kind of witnessing him witnessing him do that i think 
shaped my my disposition a bit and it you know it it moved me away from my sort of woe is me you know like life am i just going to be paying bills for the rest of my life what a bleak existence still and it's kind of funny that we are we are living like that. like see, being able to see the humor in things i think um influenced me a lot uh calvin and Hobbes comics i think kind of has the same sort of cheeky playful spirit and approach to things and i, I think bill watterson was also a very prolific comic artist what else uh I can pull up a list if if I can go I can go looking for a list if you want but uh, it's just I have I have a, I have a follow up question based mm-hmm. on what you said about uh, George Carlin. Uh what's the most impactful time you started over? Uh there are a few I guess. Um so I used to do I used to blog about local politics in Singapore. So like uh I mean I started out blogging about just whatever I felt like blogging. And at some point, I think I happened to write about some, I think there was something in the, yeah, there was something in the news that annoyed me. Like it was some reporting about schools and exam results and like uh, the, the family income of where the kids were from. So what they were saying was that, so 80, like 80 something percent of Singaporeans live in public housing and like 20, like 18, 16% live in uh, private housing. So they're wealthier and they can afford like big houses. And they were saying that, oh, more than half or less than half, less, about half, about half of the top results, like the top 10%, but half of the results at the PSLE, which is a primary school leaving examination. It's like when you're 12, you do your PSLE and then that, that score kind of affects your fate quite a lot because it affects what kind of secondary school you can go to. And so you try to go to the more prestigious ones. And uh, they were saying that about half of um, public school, half of the top results came from kids from public housing families. But like that's, and, and they were using that statistic to argue that, oh, you know, like income inequality is not a big deal. And there's like, social mobility in the country but like if you look at that same statistic like you just look at it the other way well, what you're saying is like more than half or yeah more than half of um top results come from 16 percent of the private of people who live in private homes so it's like you know I, I felt that they were brazenly misleading the public with regards to how to think about the statistics about the issue and I wrote into the papers and I criticized them and they published my criticism in a very, they like neutered my criticism. Like I tried to make it a point about you guys are not telling the truth about the situation. And they, were, they, they kind of modified my, my thing to be like, oh, you know, statistics means are so interesting. You can kind of look at it the other way. And I'm like, and so that made me angry. And I wrote about that on my blog. And that went kind of minor viral on the Singaporean blogosphere. This is like before Facebook, before like people, there was Twitter, but like, there wasn't there weren't retweet buttons on Twitter. There weren't share buttons on what Twitter. What year are we talking like about? Early, like 2009 or so. Okay. Around there. So it's like things didn't go viral as quickly or as effectively as they do now. So it was, yeah, I was like 19-ish. And uh, yeah, so that, that got a bunch of, you know, it's being reposted on forums and stuff. And, uh, you know, I felt like I was doing something like providing a valuable public service. Like, and you know, prior to that, I guess I, I sort of accepted the mainstream-ish narrative in Singapore that's like, oh, you know, the, the government is authoritarian or whatever, but like it does its best to, to do a good job and everything is going well. And, you know, everyone, like, 
like this the media is state controlled but you know everything's going well and like everyone's earning more money and gdp is going up and like so it's like a trade-off that's fine and so i'm like okay if the journalists are doing a good job then i i don't care much but like here i saw an example of like brazenly misleading the public and yeah so i, I felt compelled to so that kind of radicalized me i think that experience made me want to like identify like what else have i been misled about by my state apparatus media and so I started doing a lot more blog posts about Singaporean media and politics. And there was a market for it at the time. And like it was getting a lot of traffic and a lot of shares and all those things. And I would say even then, I tried to be measured and fair and balanced. I was more passionate and intense. So I did use more hyperbole in like saying something is terrible or something is great. or you know. But I tried to be fair. You know, I, I didn't make anything up. I didn't. Uh, I didn't want the kind of fan outrage or whatever. I just wanted people to know the truth and to be to think better. And but even then, right? Like, so let's say I'm doing like a post every couple of days about whatever's on the news and so on. Like, if once a month I happen to criticize um, a politician for saying for being stupid or whatever, I just that thing would blow out of proportion relative to everything else and it would get way more traffic and way more comments and and the comments would be less smart. You know, it would be people who just want to get mad and so they would show up in the comments and be like, yeah, screw this politician, screw whatever. And I got swept up in that, I find. And it was like, uh, you know, at, at some level, I felt like, oh, you know, I'm doing something interesting and important with my life. Like, it feels like I'm relevant. It feels like I'm, you know, contributing to the national, you know, helping the country or whatever. And but eventually it's and you know the the landscape started to change a bit. There were more there were new, these new sites that were functioning more as like platforms for other people, and like Facebook got a share button and stuff. So, so now people could write individual status updates and get shared and stuff. So the the landscape was changing, and um, I had gotten a job and I had to balance my writing with my work, but. Um, I think, and specifically, like, uh, there, was a, there was one year where, in like 2015, 14, 15, I think, where there was like a haze in Singapore, like the air, the air quality went, was terrible because they, every year or so, like the Indonesian farmers, they burn some of their crops to, to make space for land for new farming. And every so often, if the wind directions and stuff play out in a certain way, like we end up getting like this just, it's like smoky air. And it was especially bad that year, so bad that people had to wear masks. And um, like just the, the discourse around that was extremely toxic from where I was. So from like, I had gotten invested, I started making friends with people who were like very invested in these conversations, right? So I was like, all my, like a bunch of my friends were also bloggers and commentators and those people. And it just got really intense and partisan and, and toxic. And, uh, and I, I, it made me fed up and I just, decided I wasn't going to do it anymore. And so I walked away from the whole thing and I kind of, I, I, I like shut, did I shut down my blog? Um, I moved all my, most of my blog posts to like my archives because I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to keep those things up in case people needed to look at them. But like, I had also like edited a bunch of stuff in like, I summarized, I regret some of that. Like I, I, I summarized a bunch of my stuff and deleted some of my older posts. And so my archives are a bit of a mess. But, um, you know, I decided that I was going to just not do that anymore. I felt like, I felt like it had poisoned me to some degree. Like it had made me start, even though I was trying my best to be what I felt was a good person, I feel like just being in that, that news cycle day in, day out. And every, like, every morning I'm waking up and I'm checking the news to see like, what people are mad about and stuff like that. And it was just, 
I felt like it affected my writing. I felt like it affected my thinking and affected my, my emotional well-being, psychological well-being. And so I, I just confronted it and decided I didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. And so I, I shut the whole thing down and I, I decided that I wanted to rediscover what it was like to write only for myself. And that was when I, when I refocused on my million word writing project, which was like, you know, so I was, I'm like a marketer by profession and I was writing like political journalism for fun or as a passion. And so I'm very much attuned to what other people want to read, what other people want to hear, like what audiences think. And I didn't like that about myself. I didn't like that. That's how I was thinking. I didn't like having a kind of like before I write something, what will the audience think? Right? Like that kind of thinking. And so I wanted to untrain myself from that and spend, I spent like years afterwards kind of walking away from that firestorm to write like personal stuff for myself. It wasn't private. Like it was written on a, on a blog that anyone can go to, but I didn't like publicize it. And I almost deliberately was kind of tedious and, and verbose and like didn't, I didn't make it easy for readers. Like, so I have the skill set of knowing how to make things easy for readers, but I deliberately chose not to. And I'm very glad that I did that because it gave me a few years of kind of a, introspective journaling about myself, my feelings, my thoughts. And because it was deliberately kind of inaccessible, I think um, it gave me a kind of psychological insulation that when I look on Twitter today, I see some of my friends who have been, their audiences are growing and they don't have what I have, like that insulation. And I can see it kind of eating away at them, like just kind of like getting all these replies and getting you know, you're feeling like you have to do what the audience wants. Like you have to throw that shit out so that you can kind of rediscover what your innermost um, priorities and values are. And I'm very grateful to my past self for doing that. And I recommend that everybody do it. I think, you know, like, so more broadly, I, and when I look at the people that I respect and admire, I think a common trait in a lot of the people that I admire and respect is they know what it's like to walk away from something that means a lot to you, that you care a lot about, but you recognize it's kind of not right for you. Like, so some people, you know, they are lawyers who are doing well in their profession, but they realize that it's not for them and they, they leave uh, like a well-paying job or they leave, some people leave, uh, you know, their religious communities or whatever that they were, they were, they grew up raised religious and they're very embedded in the community, but they felt like it's not right for them and they walked away from that. Or, you know, people who leave abusive relationships. And just any of, anytime you do something like that, it really, it's a kind of a shock to your whole system. And you, like your, your whole, your, because you, your, your sense of identity was intertwined in that, your sense of purpose, meaning, all of those things. And yeah, you know, so when I walked away from that stuff and I realized how kind of um, contextual it is and how, um, like, so when I was in it, it was my, it felt like my whole life, sort of. And so when I left, it felt like, um, first of all, it, it was like lonely and quiet and, and isolating. And second, like with the benefit of some distance, I could see how unimportant it really was. Like how, I mean, like so there, there are some things that are important, but like it's, it's not every day that's important, right? It's not every single day's news articles that are important. It's like once in a while, there's something that's more important than others. But like when, you, when I looked back and I saw how much time and energy I had spent on something that, I now recognize it's not really a good use of my time. Like there was like an existential crisis in that. Like, you know, like what do I really care about? Is it that I, I 
was I misled into thinking that I cared about things just because other people seem to care about it, you know, that kind of thing. So I was questioning a lot of that. And I think what a big part of what people enjoy about my work today is that they can sense that I have that sort of insulation and grounding in my work. Like, so you, you no longer take anything kind of too seriously in a, in a, you know, even, even serious things, like you don't need to be kind of solemn about them in a way that is like joyless and um, not just joyless, but like there's a, there's a, there's a way that people kind of mess up doing anything, which is that they, they don't see how it is contextual. Like they don't see how it is that there's more to life than the thing that you're talking about. And if you can't see that, then you become very kind of a, like tight, you know, you become kind of stiff and needy and, and there's, there's like a flexibility and a looseness and a lightness that's outside of that. But you, you don't get to find out what that is until you kind of get out of it. And getting out of it is pretty painful. It's a, it's a, you know, like you may experience what some people call the dark night of the soul, right? Or like the collapse of all meaning, depression. Right? And um, yeah, I think, I think now I can tell, I have a pretty good sense when I see people who are doing things, making things, I can, I can pretty well sense if the person has had that experience, you know, that once you've, because once you've had to rebuild your entire life from scratch, in a sense, like your psychological sense from scratch, you have this sort of playful trickster energy, even if you're not like joking around, like you have this understanding that everything is fleeting and, and arbitrary. Um, there is a lightness in that. I trust those people more and I, I enjoy their work more. And I'm, so I'm very grateful to my past self for doing that. I had a thought come up based on something you said, which is uh, some, of the, some of your friends you know, didn't have that insulation. And so maybe they write for the audience instead of writing for themselves. Yeah. And you were able to cultivate that practice. Uh, mm -hmm. What expectations should creators have of their audiences? So, okay. I think the thing is you have to realize that whatever feedback you get from people, it's just the, it's, it's the people who show up. And I think the duty of the creator is to think about the audience that you want. So you, should, you shouldn't be tweeting or writing or making music or podcasts or whatever to pander to your existing audience. You should be thinking about what is your ideal audience, what is the audience that you want, and then you should be trying to make stuff that is for them. So it's for people who are not in the room even, right? And, you know, when you do that, some of the people who are in the room may not like it and they may leave. And, but better is where, but some of the people who are kind of on the fence or like they don't really have strong feelings or whatever, they will grow. If they stick around, they will grow into becoming the audience that you want. And people will refer their friends who they think fit that kind of ideal audience profile. And so, yeah, so it, it takes some vision. It takes some faith. It takes, you know, you, you do have, so I think people who are in the early stages of their creative journey, they might think, oh, you know, like I would like a thoughtful audience, but 
all I have are these idiots. <laughs> all I have are these these people around me who don't seem thoughtful. And you know, you can see it. You can see sometimes there are creators who very clearly don't respect their audience, and it's very sad. Like it's like. You, you, you know, it might be like a big YouTuber or a podcaster or something and they have a large audience, but you, they're not happy, you know. Um, my theory is that Ben Shapiro is one of these people. I, I feel like I can see it in his face sometimes that he doesn't, like there's this photo of him drinking from a cup that says liberal tears on it. And I'm like, you can, you can tell that, he, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not a dumb guy, right? He's, he's pretty smart, but he, he seems, and I mean, I'm projecting, I don't, I, it's not like I've interviewed him or, or listened to a lot of his stuff, but like, you know, when you see a person who's pretty smart, and they are kind of pandering to outrage and pandering to, like, then your audience does what you pander them to do. But like, can you respect them? You know, it's like, it's, they're kind of like falling for your rules, right? And then it's like, you don't respect them. And then if you don't respect, if you don't respect your audience and you're facing them every day, then you can't respect yourself, right? And then that's just a spiral of misery and unhappiness. It's not worth, you know, whatever money or fame or prestige you think you're getting when you don't respect yourself. And so, yeah, so you have to, you have to figure out what is, it, what is it you respect, what is it you admire, what is it you think is good and valuable in the world. And then you have to at least, at least try to work towards that. And, you know, if you're in some situation where, like, that's not... You know, so I used to work in, in corporate, corporate startup software marketing. And I had my ideals that, you know, but at the same time, I had, like, work targets to meet. And so there was, there was some compromise there where I have to write things that... I'm not super excited about, but I know that it's what gets traffic and it's what gets us sales. And so we can make more money and so we can pay our team and so we can hire more people and, and do more interesting things down the road. So, I mean, in that case, like, I think it's still valuable to at least carve out a little bit of time and space, either within your work if possible or outside of it. And like, yeah, I, you know, when, so while I was working, I would always be writing for myself on my commutes to work and back home. And again, like now that I look back, I'm kind of amazed at the volume of work that I had done for myself before and after work, like on my commutes and train every day. And you're just handwriting still, or you're typing? No, or? in my phone, on my phone. Okay. And when I was using Android, it was an Evernote. And then when I switched to an iPhone, it was just the iPhone Notes app. And it's just text. You know, at the time, like I didn't have much of a Twitter audience. So if I was tweeting, nobody cared. So I would just write for myself in my notes. And yeah, it's like hundreds of thousands of words at the, over a few years. And I'm very, very grateful to my past self for doing that because when I talk to people who are, you know, in their mid-30s, for example, and they have spent their whole life kind of, you know, so they don't really like the job, and, but they spend a lot of time at it. And then so when they're done with their work, they feel like, oh, I'm so tired and exhausted from working. I don't want to do any more work. I just want to relax. So, you know, you watch Netflix or you... you know. And then, you know, sometimes there's like this people guilt trip other people. They're like, oh, you know, you shouldn't be wasting your time on this frivolous Netflix and chill and, um, you know, whatever, playing mobile games or whatever. And I don't know if that's helpful. I think if you make people feel bad about themselves, like that's just going to become like a guilt spiral and self. I think it's really like uh, my, my advice to like younger people or anybody kind of struggling with this stuff is like, try and find something that you love and you that you know since you were a child or since whatever like something that you love or you think is important and you know devote as much time and energy as you can afford which might not be a lot right so it might be that maybe once a week you write one paragraph of fiction let's say like you, you know that you're probably not going to be a famous author of you're not going to write the next game of thrones or, or lord of the rings or whatever but you love fiction you should write 
a paragraph a week or so of that, like just for your soul, you know, so that just, just, just so that you don't die inside. And if you do that, you know, a paragraph a week adds up to like a chapter every couple of months, every, and then that adds up to a book a year, like in your spare time, it does. And, and then once you, then you have a book, even if you're not, you know, you're never going to be famous. You now have a book that is a uh, fantasy fiction or whatever. It might not be that good, but you can share it with editors. You can share it with your friends. You can share it with people who care about it. And again, people might tell you that it's shit, but like, if it's stuff that you love, you'll be like, oh, why is it shit? Like, tell me why it's like, what? And then they say, oh, you know, your plot is so, this part is so predictable and whatever. And then you can improve on it. And it's stuff that you can improve in your spare time. Like, again, you really don't need much time. You need like, like half an hour a week, half an hour, half an hour, you know, 10 minutes a day, something small. Commutes are a good time to do this kind of thing. And yeah, and, and, the, and, the, th- and the reward is, it's not necessarily that you're going to get a book deal or you're going to get crazy fans or whatever, but like the reward is that you, you are living your life as a person who values yourself, who values, you know, what you value and what you, and so, sometimes I hear from people who are like, oh, you know, I value this, but does anybody else, you know, nobody else values this. I'm like, mm, it shouldn't matter you know, you so it so that that bec- that becomes a matter of like your your self respect, right? And pe- it's very sad how people have been conditioned to kind of not value their self respect very much. Like they don't, they they you they almost price it at a very low. You can buy their self respect for like a bunch of trinkets or a bunch of you know fame, prestige, whatever. And that's very sad because you know if you go to the root of anything truly great like whether it's in science you know like einstein or just whatever you can think of it's like somebody loved something whether it was art or science or whatever poetry and they made time for it and some people are more privileged than others and they can kind of automatically afford the time but you know there were people who wrote there were soldiers who wrote poetry in the trenches right like because they wanted to and yeah just just when you have that that relationship with yourself, like when, so when you are sitting alone or you, you take yourself out on a coffee date or whatever and you, you know that within you is someone who respects you enough and cares about your interests enough that they want to devote some of their time and energy to you. Like that's a very beautiful feeling. Like you can, it can make you cry. You, know? you, re- you really kind of realize that you didn't have that relationship with yourself before and you have it now. And then when you have that, I find that it, it, it isn't contained. It extends beyond yourself. People can tell when a person has that sense of self-love and self, um, you know, that they value themselves that way. And they want to be around you because they also feel like they, wanna, they want some of that magic. So Alan Watts definitely had that, I feel. And I felt that listening to him enjoy himself. Like, so he said, like, uh, you know, I don't, the reason I do... Uh, these lectures is because I enjoy the sound of my voice and I enjoy a point of view that I would like to share with you so that you may also enjoy it. And it's, it's that very generous, very abundance mindset kind of, uh, and you know, you might think like, you know, but isn't that not making you any money or you know, like, like have like an hour a week that is not for money, but for what you think is more valuable than money. You know, there's this quote from a, uh, there's a book called Medici Money. Right? It's about the Florentine bankers. And they said that, you know, one of the anxieties in Western society, and I think we are all Westerners now, one of the anxieties of Western society is like they have financial systems and money and you can, it's wonderful what you can do with money and you can buy, every, you can buy almost anything you want. 
But then the question is, is there anything beyond money? You know, does everything have a price? Like if, if everything has a price, then, oh God, are we kind of subjected to this, this crushing economic system that is the overlord of, you know, like this, this cruel, faceless money God that is only cares about what the cash value of everything is. And like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You can decide to rebel against that in the tiniest of ways. You can really just be half an hour a day, five minutes a day, whatever. Just, you know, I'm going to meditate, right? Be- just because fuck you, that's why, right? And just, just as, as a little bit of, um, of rebellion for yourself. And I find that that's a very, uh, it's the seed of a good relationship with yourself. And that a good relationship with yourself is the seed of good relationships with other people. And, you know, like I wouldn't use, I wouldn't elaborate down that line of reasoning to convince someone that they can make money from it because that's besides the point. But I do also believe that you can make more money from it. You know, one of my, I was doing a salon last month uh, on, on the interintellect. So it's like 40, 20, 20, 25 people or so in a, in a zoom call and we're talking about, aesthetics and somebody was asking like you know like you know what it's what's the value of aesthetics really you know like what if you know and we were talking about like a central park in new york you know so central park in new york is some of the most valuable real estate in the world right but like what is the real monetary price of central park because if you if you remove central park and you fill it with buildings right then new york is no longer new york like what makes new york is that they have central park in the middle of the most valuable real estate in the world so the correct answer to how what is the monetary price price of central park is fuck you all right it's <laughs> it's that we are we are new york like, i'm not a new yorker and i feel pride on behalf of new yorkers that they are able to have a city that's able to have some of the most valuable real estate in the world and refuse to develop it and like this, because they feel that the, the greenery and the water and something, it's worth something to them more than money. And that gives them that aura of, of you know, whatever it is, that, that, that magic that attracts people from all over the world. And like, if you try to put a dollar on that magic, like it's probably in the billions of dollars, right? And yeah, so similar. So I think the thing that I ended up kind of like shouting a little bit, I was like, so do you want to increase your lifetime revenue by 5% or do you want to live fucking gloriously? You know, like... And then, like, that shouldn't be, it's, when you frame it like that, it's obvious, right? And the, my additional kind of thesis is, if you live fucking gloriously, the, the aura that you have, the vibe that you have that people connect to will increase your lifetime revenue by much more than 5%. But you, at that point, you don't even care anymore. You're not, you're not measuring the beans and, and all those things. And uh, I have one more thing to say about that, which is just, but... Yeah, the point isn't the, the money. Like the point is that you enjoy your life, right? So that's, that's that. You made a very interesting comment um, in this, um, which is uh, you said we are all Westerners now. Right. <laughs> Elaborate more on that. Uh, and for people in context, like so someone's listening, you're in Singapore right now. Yeah. Right? Uh, Born and raised. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I would love if you could elaborate on, on that. Uh, what was the context of this? Um, I, th- that was a phrase that I that arose for me while I was doing a thread about, I think dating. Like, uh, I think I had something like the the Western concept of dating is feels outdated to me. Like, it feels like it's and you know if you go and look it up, like this idea of boyfriend and girlfriend, and we go on dates and whatever. Like, it's it's not you know like 
like tribal nomadic bushmen type people, they didn't exactly have boyfriends and girlfriends and all that. Like the, this concept was invented at some point. And when you go and look it up, I, I believe it was kind of mostly in its current form, it was sort of invented in post-World War II America. Mm. And there are like reasons for that, like, you know, culturally and like, like just the post-war economy and all of those things. And then, you know, it became a part of like TV and there were like Hollywood movies and TV shows about dating. You know, like Friends is a, is a TV show from the 90s that depicted what it's like to be a bunch of single adults live, co-living without, like in, in that environment. And like Friends is like globally popular with in India, in Brazil, in, in China even, I think. The Chinese love how I love, um, they really love the Big Bang Theory, which is interesting. Interesting. But um, yeah, but like again, all of these, like all of these American slice of life, lifestyle sitcom shows, they, whether intentionally or not, they ended up providing a template for like the global cosmopolitan middle class people to 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 frame their own concept of how life should be lived right and um, yeah that's 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 profound man that's like a we have really all been incepted with these ideas and i'm not saying that these ideas are wrong you know it's just that it's one way of being and there conceivably could be an infinite ways of being or like you know five six other very different ways of being but because like that becomes like the central cultural touch point in a lot of modern societies. Then everyone else kind of aspires to that. You know, everyone else is, and you know, like um, YouTube and Facebook and all those companies, they're all like headquartered in California, mostly Instagram. Right. And so indirectly the rest of the world ends up like taking their cues from like, so however their, their community moderation standards and just whatever norms that they set, they set in accordance with their values. And again, they have, I, I, they have a bunch of very good things about Western values, about, you know, LGBT rights and a bunch of other stuff like that. But like, um, at the same time, it's, we kind of just, you know, we import, um, everything, right? Like just when you, when you watch friends and you, like um, go to study in a Western university. Again, like not all universities are Western universities, basically, right? Even in Singapore, even in Japan or whatever, like the the system of academia started out in the scientific um, enlightenment in Western. Like, oh, I can talk about this for hours, but it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's difficult for people to conceive of, like a lot of the things that we take for granted are just kind of uh, how it's how the world is, doesn't necessarily have to be that case. It's just that it's like accidents of history. So like, um, yeah, so everything from dating to careers, how you think about careers, how you think about, you know, um, families, right? It's all, it's all kind of, so like in, in India and in Indonesia and like all these places, like there was, you know, kind of a certain way of thinking about family. And I'm, again, I don't necessarily think that's, correct or wrong it's just that there were some ways of thinking and there are multiple ways of thinking and then there's this idea of like oh modernization and so now we're thinking about something else and so you know people people value independent like personal independence a lot and again i don't think that's necessarily bad like i I value my personal independence but like uh you know i see friends kind of so a common thing is that you shouldn't get married young, right? Which, which I thought was bullshit. My wife also thought. So we, we got married young, which is one of the best decisions we made. And it's difficult to talk about with people who assume that 
marriage is a certain way. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, to get value out of this, you, you would have to be asking me a lot of questions and I would be getting into them back and forth a lot because um, everybody does have very different starting points for how they think about each one of these things. And uh, people have different assumptions about what the words mean and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, it's just, I guess the thing that I would want people to just think about is, I don't, want, I don't necessarily want people to think that, oh, you should be pro-Western or anti-Western or you should be traditional or modern or whatever. But like just, just consider that the way everything is doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Here's a simple one. What year is it, right? It's the, the, year, it's the year 2021. Why? Because, you know, Jesus Christ died 2,021 years ago and then, you know, the Roman Empire. And then, what, what day of the week is it? It's Friday. You know, why? Like, why? Like, it's... it's how many how many days a week do we work? Five days a week. Why? Like all of these, you trace it back. It's like all Western stuff, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. So you can question everything, and it's always like all of the defaults that we assume about things. It's like things can change, and and I mean, some people will be like, oh, you can't change society. Yeah, because people haven't gotten around to like not not enough people. Re- so now during COVID, like I, I've seen a lot of people saying why don't we just do a three-day weekend? Like, why don't we do a four-day work week and a three-day week? And that is a conversation we should be having at a global scale because the five-day work week was established during the industrial, like post-industrial revolution era. And it's like, yeah, that seemed optimal for people who were working in factories. But like for people who are doing, you know, like um, knowledge work, as far as I've seen, every company that does knowledge work, software development or, you know, accounting or legal stuff, like, a lot of the companies that have experimented with doing a four-day week and three-day weekend, they find that they actually get more productive, which implies that a lot of people, first of all, people need more than a weekend to kind of, uh, you know, you handle your errands and see your family and do your personal stuff. And like, So when people don't have enough time in the two-day weekend, they end up kind of squeezing that into the five-day week and they procrastinate more at work and they're like running out the clock and like anything about this happening with billions of people it's crazy it's so suboptimal and uh yeah you know that's the kind of thing that drove me nuts as a teenager and it also made me very very adamant about running my own life in a sense you know like just i don't want i don't trust the default settings like the default settings of everything is barely a couple of hundred years old like schools everything is it's not it's not optimized for your benefit. It's optimized for the convenience of the people running the system. And the end result is you get people who are depressed and anxious and, and frustrated and overwhelmed and lonely and all kinds of bad shit. And they blame themselves rather than they blame the system because it's always easy to, you know, um, atomize systemic failings into personal lack of responsibility. But like, what if everyone just needs more vacations? You know, it's like, <laughs> like you, you, you can't, yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> Uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever made an exception to not mm-hmm. trusting the default setting? I mean, yeah, it's, uh, so it's, it's, it would be very difficult to kind of um, live my life distrusting. Like, I mean, so I'm skept- I would say, okay, I'm skeptical of the default setting, but like, I'm not like, so I, I know of people who are much more extreme about this than I am. You know, there are people who, you know, want to live off the grid, right? Like grow their own uh, plants or whatever and get rid of their government ID like this like preppers and I'm I trust um, like the found fundamental logistics elements of society like uh, you know if 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 
So I don't know how. So I can cook somewhat. You know, I can I can fry the meat that I buy from a store. But like, if you ask me to cook my to like hunt my own chicken, I'm probably screwed, right? <laughs> um, I, like, and I'll and I'll I'll take my loss with that. You know, if we have an apocalyptic event and we have to hunt our own food, well, so you know how how I how I solve that problem is, uh, I do still believe in people, right? So I'm skeptical about like like um, authorities. I'm skeptical about bureaucracies, but I do believe in people. So this goes way older than civilization, right? So for like humanity is like a hundred thousand years old. Civilization is like five to 10,000 years old. And so people have always taken care of each other, like from prehistory, right? There are people who have in prehistory who have like broken bones and they lived until death because their peers were taking care of them. So if I can't hunt food, like I better have some set of skills that I can offer you know, let's say we have a zombie apocalypse or something, right? Like, and I like, what job can you do in the zombie camp? Okay, I can't, I can't get food, but like, you know, I can introduce you to other people. I can negotiate conflicts. I can like, whatever. I mean, they might still throw me out. I don't know. But <laughs> I, I, I feel like it, I, enough people know me and like me and respect me and trust me that I would probably be okay. I hope. You know, I remember reading, um, and I think was, there was this, article about a, a lady from like Lebanon or like one of the Middle Eastern countries and her her she was like a like highly esteemed academic like she was doing very well in life and stuff and then there was a civil war I think and they had to become refugees and I think they moved to somewhere in Europe probably like London or Berlin I think Berlin and just you know they, they, they were one of the luckier ones because they made it there and they've tried to start a new life but you could see that she was um, really distraught because like, I mean, first of all, you lost your home and you lost like all of that, but it's, it's not just the home, right? Like it's the network of relationships you have to other people, the sense of, um, you know, I have contributed to society and I have this standing in society that I've earned and all of that stuff. And if, if you lose all of that, what are you, right? Like it's like, oh, that's just very depressing. And yeah, I feel like that's one of the things that I have tried to um, kind of, prep all my life like I tr- like you know at this day I'm super privileged in the sense that I have friends in most major cities around the world so if for some reason like the like my city is gonna explode or you know climate crisis or something like I have friends in you know every what you name it Japan US Europe wherever South Africa like I can go somewhere and there will be a friend like I, don't, I mean I'm not not every single one of those cities has a friend who likes me enough that they will like put me up in their house. But like I have someone who can like vouch for me, right? And can introduce me, help me get a job, that kind of thing. And I mean, I know that sounds like bragging a little bit, but like when I was a teenager, it made me really anxious. Like, you know, because I remember, I, th- I think I, I was reading about like Singapore history, like, uh, and we, you, we had to study it in school. And I think it, it's very interesting because I didn't realize this until quite a bit later. And I don't know if I'm like, you know, hindsight rationalizing or like inventing it after the fact. But I think I was very troubled by um, the wartime inflation in during the Japanese occupation of Singapore, where like money became worthless basically because there was wartime inflation. And the idea that money can become worthless, I think it, it kind of terrified me as a kid. I'm like, well, what happens if money becomes worthless? Then if it's like trade, you know, cigarettes and whatnot. And yeah, I'm just like, okay, so what, what if money becomes worthless? Like, what, what do we do next? And yeah, I think at the same time, I was like, oh, the internet is a really cool place and you can build relationships with people and blah, blah, blah. 
sorry, your question was, uh, when do I distrust the, when do I trust? No, but the, keep keep, keep going on this. Keep going on this. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's just money. How do I, how, how do I be not kind of, um, you know, in the event of some kind of disaster or apocalypse or whatever, like how do I not be so badly screwed that like I cluelessly didn't see it coming? Like, you know, I, like sometimes you just read about someone who, who's uh, just had some kind of un- unforeseen bad outcome or something. And then I, I always think it's really sad when something terrible happens and one, it could have been avoided or two, like, it could have been foreseen to some degree. And I mean, so this whole coronavirus thing is like, there were people who were warning about it like in January, right? Last year. And like, it's almost more sad that the authorities globally screwed it up so much than the loss of, I mean, so the loss of life is fucking tragic, obviously. Like RIP to everybody who suffered, people losing family members, all that's really sad. But like, almost more sad to me is uh, or like equivalent, equivalently said maybe or like just some the, the thing that troubles me more than is, is just knowing that um, you know so if anything equivalently bad happens that's what we get you know if an alien invasion happens or if a you know natural disasters that's like 10 times worse than anything we've, ha- we've seen before which some people don't even realize can happen you know like there have been several extinction events in the history of the planet that humanity has not faced yet and it could happen in our lifetime. It, pro- it probably won't, hopefully. And there are some smart people thinking about it, but maybe not enough. And again, I don't, I don't want to make people anxious by <laughs> talking about existential threats. But like, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't want to say I enjoy it, but it's a thing that I return to periodically because I don't want, I don't want deathbed regrets. I think that's, that's how I think about these things. Like, I don't want to... Like, enough people have died enough people have like had deathbed regrets, right? There's enough people who are like, I'm 80 years old and I have lung cancer or whatever and I'm going to die and I realize that I should have spent more time with my family or like I should have lived, you know, there's just like five, like there's nursing homes that collect the top um, regrets of the dying and like one of it is like, I, I regret that I didn't live a life true to myself. I regret that I spent too much time at work, I think. I regret that, uh, not more time with friends and family, something like that. There's like a, a few deathbed regrets like that. And like, you know, why do we not, we should be teaching this on like day one of school, right? Like, like just, if you're trying to prepare people for life, like you should tell them what people at the end of it regret so that we can avoid it and it should be a priority, but it's not. So, uh, but it's, it's a priority for me. Like I don't want to feel like I fucked up, basically. Uh, so you have, uh, like, seems like you've thought a lot about a lot of different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some of, and something you've also advocated for is is note taking, right? Yes. Um, I love to understand, like, what is your note taking process, and what do you think mm-hmm. the relationship is between creativity and note taking? Right. So uh, the first thing that I think of is. There was a Richard, there's a a quote about Richard Feynman or something he said in conversation with somebody, like he was working on a math problem or like, no, sorry, like a physics problem, right? And somebody said, oh, you took notes of your thinking. And Feynman said, that's not notes of my thinking. That is my thinking. Like, this is my thinking. The thinking's not in my head. The thinking happens on the paper. That is what I'm doing. 
and I, I agree with that. I feel like um, I think of my notes as an extension of my mind. And, uh, you know, the, like it's like what I was saying earlier about like minimizing regret and uh, not getting screwed and all those things. So, and I, I am a pretty scatterbrained ADHD kind of chaos demon, I guess. And uh, I think of notes as a way of um, representing mental states into the future. It's almost like, a, you know, I can get very dramatic about it because I find that drama makes me feel more feelings, right? Like it's just it's like, it's like when you have a very cinematic movie and the music is very like epic and you're like, oh, it's, it feels good. And like, so my version of being very epic about it is like, you know, thoughts are very fragile and they're fleeting. And if you don't write them down, um, they die, like they just disappear into the ether. And every person has a brain that's like, or most people, it's like there's this centralized propaganda department of the self that constructs a narrative of the story of what the person's life is. So even in this conversation, I've, I've told you a bunch of things that, you know, I'm not entirely sure if I actually thought at some point in time, like, because always when people ask you to remember what you used to do or what you used to think, you don't exactly recall the exact memory. You kind of recreate a story that makes sense. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, it sounds about right that when I was a kid, I read about a Japanese hockey player. Like, did I? I? I think I did. But like, if I had notes at the time, then I would know for sure, right? Mm-hmm. And so notes are a way of like corroborating with your past selves about what they thought. And people's experiences are much more volatile and, um, you know, like if you ask someone to estimate like what was your year last like you know how what was what did I say what was last year like for you like they will give you this very broad narrative that's pretty general and they will say oh it's great or it's terrible or it was you know it's all right like they're kind of like very very broad bands and if you take notes every day you'll find that oh I had like this I had this amazing day in February where I was just very inspired by something that I saw. I had this terrible day in March where, you know, um, I met up with my ex-girlfriend and she said some shit that really hurt my feelings and I was talking and it made me think about my relationship with my dad. Like that, that thing, if you don't write it down, you will forget it. And like your brain will want you to forget those things because it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant, that kind of thing, right? So you see, it's all connected. It's like when you take all of these notes, you remember things that deviate from your central narrative and one of my you know like uh to overstate it a little bit but i think there's truth to it like almost everybody that you think is a genius they basically were just able to overcome the homeostasis of their central narrative so they were able whether it's like in science or in math or whatever they just kept pushing past what they know and or what they think they know and by leaving notes all the time i think so even darwin had a quote had a note a quote a quote about notes where he said like if something challenges your thinking or if something challenges your beliefs or like it doesn't fit your theory, you should write it down immediately because in like 30 minutes, you're going to forget. Like, you know, so you have doubt about something. Like in a, in a, so Darwin felt that you would forget in 30 minutes. And by kind of doing all of those note-taking things, like that helped him do the kind of rigorous thinking you need to figure out evolution, right? And do it on the origin of species. And yeah, you know, like if you look up anybody, composers, anybody who's done anything, it's like, I would say if, if you're interested in the truth, right, if you're interested in knowing the truth about yourself, then like note taking forces you to face it. I mean, you can take videos, you can take photos, you can take, um, you know, selfie videos or whatever. And lately I find that 
I regret that I didn't take more videos when I could have. Like uh, now what I try to do is, well, I now I have a YouTube channel. So it's like every time I make a video, it's, it's journaling in that way. But like how cool would it be if like you have a two or three minute video, maybe sometimes five minute videos of yourself from every month of your life. Like that would be like when you, when you watch it, you will see things about yourself that you don't remember day to day. And that forces you to expand your self-concept beyond like this very narrow thing that you typically imagine. And so it makes you a more interesting person. People are more interesting than they know and they forget how interesting they are because of that central narrative um, homeostasis force, right? And then people feel like, oh, my life's so boring. Oh, you know, it's, it's not true though. You know, it's just, you need to you need to capture moments of magic, moments of frustration, like all of these kind of uh, intense things. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not super um, disciplined about note-taking. So, like, um, my no- I don't have, like, a structure. I don't, like, a, a lot of my notes is just, either I just tweet a lot, right? So, Twitter does function as, like, my shared note-taking app. Or I type things into my phone. And, um, and it's, like, so even when I'm looking at my, my notes from my iOS, my MacBook notes app, it's, like, you know, um, Pericles had tutors, you know, train ride. I'm on the train ride on the way home and having drinks from Twitter friends. I was thinking that I've been spending too much time on Twitter lately. You know, I've been working on my ebook for some time now. It's always on my mind. I'm not always working on it. It seems kind of tedious. You know, it's like, it's just all these little fragments of thoughts about my book that I'm working on that once I've published it, I won't remember. And then if you ask me, how, did, how was your book? I was like, ah, oh, it's all right. <laughs> so it's really getting into the specific nitty gritty and just whatever's on your mind, you know, um, I have one that says, I'm watching Robert Downey Jr. on Letterman's Netflix show and he's talking about how he is involved in modifying scripts. That's it. That's the whole sentence. But now I can, I can remember what I thought about that. I remember thinking that is a very high level of involvement for an actor to have with his, with, on a show. Like just, I was watching a TV show and I just wrote down a note and it's, like, it's just like 13 words, right? And I don't know if I'm ever going to reference it again. But it's just these little snippets of, of thoughts. Like, and practicing identifying what the interesting thoughts are helps me identify interestingness in everything. And so then people start telling me, oh, Visa, you have such interesting observations. Like, everyone does, you know, it's just that, and yeah, okay, maybe I'm like a bit more skilled at it because I can do it a bit faster because I'm doing this so often. But it's like, it's like learning to juggle or learning to write with your other hand or like anybody can do it. It just takes practice. It's like playing a musical instrument. It just takes practice. You have to suck at it for a while and then you keep doing it and you, you, your taste develops and you have a sense of what you like, what you don't like and you can do more of what you like and so you get better at gratifying yourself and then you enjoy your life more. Like people buy things with money, you know, that they earn from jobs that they don't like and then they buy consumer goods and they buy whatever. It is. Like you know, this is a very cliche thing to say but yeah, people buy stuff trying to feel better but like the amount that you can feel better from consumer goods, whether it's from a nice drink or nice clothes or nice you know, watching a movie or like, and not to knock on those things. Those are decent things, but like you, it doesn't like, there's a, there's a hedonic treadmill thing, right? Like uh, as you get, you get used to new levels of luxury or pleasure or whatever. And then it's, you get used to it and it's no longer exciting. And then it's like, Oh, I'm bored again. And I still hate my job. And I said, whereas like, if you practice appreciating things and like, you know, practice appreciating what is, beautiful about your friends what is funny about your friends you know or like what 
Like if you're lying in bed, you're like, oh, what was, what was the most interesting thing that happened today? Like you just practice that and you just feel like you live a more interesting life and then you start making more interesting decisions and then it's just, it's a more enjoyable life. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to cost you anything. It's just, I mean, it takes time, but like it's a good use of your time. Yeah. Uh, and you'd also mentioned your YouTube videos. Uh, mm-hmm. And I did have a question about something very interesting you had tweeted about your mm-hmm. videos. So one of the things you mentioned is you don't actually spend a lot of time editing your videos. Yeah. Uh, and you have this tweet that Mr. Read out, um, time spent editing a 40 minute video down to five minutes is actually time that can be spent making like five different 40 minute videos. Yeah. That's correct. <laughs> What's the, so, so I, I, I guess I'm making an assumption that maybe editing a video is perhaps not the most enjoyable part of the process for you. Um, I think it's interesting. Most people would be like, whatever, I'll suck it up and I'll like edit it. Uh, but you've mm-hmm. chosen, I think, very interesting stance of like, no, I'm just going to keep making 40 minute roughly edited yeah. videos and that will just make me better at those 40 minute videos. Yeah. So I hardly even, I mean, I, I don't even edit my videos basically. It's basically just raw footage of me talking into the camera. And uh, I mean, I might have edited like a couple of them, but the point is, okay, so let's take like five, five videos, right? Um, you, a video cannot be edited to become something better than what the material in the video is, right? So let's say each 40-minute video, you want to edit it down to 10 minutes, right? The best 10 minutes in one 40-minute video, it, like no amount of editing will create something better than the best 10 minutes in that video. Whereas if you make five separate videos of 40 minutes each, so now you have 200 minutes of videos, right? Yeah. So you may have like 10 minutes in your third video that were really, really good. But like if you made, if you're focused entirely on the first 40 minutes, you'll never even get to that 10 minutes in the third video. So the idea is you make as many videos as possible and you put them in the public space and you will then receive feedback from in terms of how many, what the view count is. Some people might leave comments and like by just having that volume of output, people will tell you what your best video is. And so once you have, once you have like 10 videos out and like the fourth and the seventh videos are the most popular, then you should edit those videos later on maybe. But like if you spend all your time, you know, so well, let's say two, two people are on their YouTube journeys together. One guy makes one well edited video once a week. One guy publishes a new video every single day that's hard, that's not, not edited at all. It's just chaos and mess. Like in, so in, in, in a year, like so 12 months. So the first guy, one video a week, 12 months for, it's 52 videos. First guy makes 52 videos, right? One a week. Yeah, 52 videos. Second guy makes 365 videos, right? The chances of that second guy having a video kind of, resonate with people and get knocked out of the ballpark is like significantly more than the first guy especially I mean there's, there's like some variables you can introduce where you know like it depends on what their pre-existing content background is and like what is the quality of their thoughts and but let's assume it's, a, it's basically the same guy you clone the guy and you know it's they're doing this they're both the same guy and they're doing this I mean and this is actually the anecdote so the, the story that I read, and it's, it's a, like a parable, I don't know if it actually happened, but the parable that I read that made me decide to write a million words was 
the parable of the pottery class, which is that um, there's a pottery class and like the teacher divides the class in half and like, let's say the first half, let's call them A, they are graded on being able, on the best possible pot they can make. So just your only job is to make the best possible pot you can make. And so what they do is they sit down with the same pot and they try and, and uh, make that pot as well as they can. Some of them, maybe they, may, they try two or three different pots and they, they try and make the best one. The second half of the class, B, they are graded on the number of pots they make. And so you, if, you know, if, you, if you make 10 pots, you get a C, 20 pots, B, whatever, 50 pots, A. And at the end of the class, all the best pots were made by the second half of the class. Because as you make more and more pots, you, you develop a sense of what goes into a good pot. And you de- once you made the first pot, you're like, huh, why, why is this so f- like flat in a certain way? So you try again, make a different pot. You're like, oh, now, now it's too much this way. Then you try another pot. And like by your 20th or 30th or 40th pot, you've made so many pots, you develop a sensitivity that you cannot develop looking doing your first thing and that's that's basically the magic of being prolific in in anything right like if you try to write a hundred songs versus trying to write one song well because your concept of what a song is and what a good song is is something that is itself a work in progress that you will only refine by doing more and more of the same thing or writing more and more songs and so yeah so with with videos i mean the idea is to iterate to figure out like content audience fit basically like, so five different videos can be about five different topics. And one of those topics might be better than the other four, right? And so, like, I did 100 videos last year. And so, I have a sense, like, if I had only made 50, right? And, like, I mean, it depends on, like, you know, it's, it's all a spectrum. But like, I feel like the more I make, the more, I, and I get more comfortable speaking. I get more comfortable with the camera just by sheer volume of FaceTime, right? And I get to watch, like, it's just... It, I would like to be able to speak freely, confidently, off the cuff about anything at any time. Like that's kind of the skill that I'm gunning for. And then when I can do that, then like if subsequently I want to edit my videos down to something super short and snappy, I can. And I, I realistically, I'm probably going to just get someone else to do it for me. <laughs> like, uh, but I mean, I, I would probably also want to learn it a bit so that I know what I'm doing. But yeah, being a master video editor is not, in my, I don't know, I'm conflicted about it. I might, I might try and get better at it. Um, I do think it's an interesting art form that I neglected for most of my life. And uh, I do think that, you know, so some of my Twitter threads, I'm pretty sure would actually be better as YouTube videos than as Twitter threads because like, I'm almost trying to show people things and like it's a, the, the medium is limited in certain ways. And um, yeah, so, but... I, you know, and I have ideas for very complex YouTube video essays that I don't currently, I'm not currently qualified to do. So like uh, I have a mean girl, I have an essay about mean girls on, it's like a blog post that's pretty popular. And so I'm, I can be confident that when I make a video essay about mean girls, it will do well because I can just share it with everybody who already enjoyed the first essay. But like I, my vision for how it would be, would be, I should be, I shouldn't just be talking. Right? I should be referencing the material from the movie. So I should get a copy of the movie and then cut up the, the scenes that I want to talk about and freeze the frame and talk about it. But like, um, yeah, I don't yet feel confident in my ability to do that well. So I'm trying to, so like I did this, I recently did like this short video essay that's like three minutes about Jimi Hendrix's aesthetics, like his outfits. And that was like, 
it took me maybe an hour to put together and it's basically a slideshow. It's basically just photos and I'm just talking over the photos. But like, and even then, having done that, having done that first video, I'm now, then I watch it afterwards and I'm like, huh, I'm panning too quickly across the images and it, it feels kind of fr- frantic. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so I should, I should slow down the pants if I do the pants. And I made, I also wanted to make a vlog. Like, like I just want to get better at this generally. So I, I told myself, okay, I'm going to go out to meet my friends. Let's, let's just take some video footage randomly and then just stitch it together and then just up- upload it. And it's terrible. It's, uh, it's me and my wife going to, to Little India in Singapore to have dinner and to buy, and to buy my mic stand actually. And uh, yeah, so I made a bunch of short videos. I just took out my phone. I'm like, here is this. Here is that. And then when I, when I stitched it together, I found that any video that's shorter than five seconds, like if it's like two or three seconds, it's like you might as well not use it because it's like it's on the screen. You're, by the time you understand what's going on, it's gone. So it's like you, you don't even know what you just saw, right? And I didn't know that until after I made the video and published it. And then I saw it. I'm like, huh, that's so confusing. That's so, you know, so I learned that, okay, I should make sure that every piece of video footage is at least about five seconds. And so by making more and more of these videos and just publishing them quickly and then just looking at them. And sometimes people will tell me like, oh, I liked this. Like some people, if I had felt that um, I shouldn't publish this because it's not good enough, like I wouldn't get feedback from people telling me what they liked about it or didn't like about it. And, you know, I could be sitting on that like five minutes of footage from that day for months and not do anything. But I just uploaded it and like I have friends who watched it and people are like, oh, you know, this feels like a very nice slice of life. Um, you know, it's nice to see the streets and all those things. Like, oh, okay, people like streets. You know, it's like you, you just learn all these little things and you, you add it up and you make more and more things and you, you watch it and then you get a sense of what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, so it's really, it's about optimizing for learning, basically. Like what maximizes the exposure of your work to an audience and then um, what feedback you can get. And there does come a point where it feels like you hit diminishing returns. So I used to make a lot of 40-minute videos and people don't have the patience to watch the whole thing, right? It's understandable because people are busy and they have a lot of stuff going on. And so then now I have reduced the video length to about 10 minutes, 10 to sometimes 8 minutes, sometimes 12 to 14 minutes. And I find that when I do that, I get more feedback and more people watch the whole video of halfway. I mean, I guess, again, a shorter video is easier to make time for. Like maybe you have a meeting in 20 minutes. Okay, I'll watch this video, right? And um, I get more feedback. So I optimize for whatever gets me more feedback. I mean, not, that's not the only thing that goes on. So when I used to make the longer videos, I wanted to practice make talking for long periods of time so that I felt comfortable talking for long periods of time. And I, it's kind of a test for myself anyway. I wanted to see how long I can keep going. But now that I know that I can go that long and people don't seem to really like it, I can, I, you know, it makes more sense to adjust to, okay, people seem to like shorter videos slightly. And, you know, I, I could edit down the long videos into short ones, but I'd rather just make new videos and make shorter videos. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I can, in my mind's eye, I can visualize like I'm going to make another 100 10 minute videos, eight minute videos. And like some of them will be smash hits that I cannot anticipate because you, you never know what's going to work. Like sometimes you just happen to say something that resonates with people and, and people remember it and it, that becomes a thing, which is cool. It's like going viral, right? Like you don't know in advance what people are going to like. So you should just make a lot of stuff and let, let the audience carry you in a sense. And then when you do that, you can, you can expand on that. You can develop on that. And yeah, and that, that's fun for me. Like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have this, over-engineered process where like I, I plan out exactly what I'm going to do and it's like this very elaborate. Then it becomes like a job, you know, and I want to have fun. I want to be like, 
how do I feel like writing about today? Hmm. I, or like, you know, I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed and something annoys me. I'm like, hmm, that annoys me. I, sh- I wonder why it annoys me. Should I make a video about it? And let's turn on my camera. I'm like, hey, hey, let's talk about this thing for 10 minutes. And it's, it's just fun for me. Uh, I want to change tracks here a little bit. All right. Uh, we, uh, or at least maybe I hang out in a very entrepreneurial part of Twitter, right? Uh, but okay. one of the things you mentioned in your ebook is you were actually pretty influenced by your ex-boss. I think his name is Dinesh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned a couple of things. One is I think uh, he influenced you to be more precise, um, yeah. but then also be more curious about people. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, what's the importance of having a great boss? Um, that's a good question. It's, it can be hard to find, I think, but like, um, you know, a, a great boss presumably is probably someone older than you and uh, someone who has more experience than you in some way. And, you know, if you have a high trust relationship with that person, uh, they can spot the mistakes in your thinking. They can spot, you know, like, so if you're going to try and do something, they can see and say, oh, you should, like, if, if you go there, what do you think is going to happen? You know, and then, like, they, they, can, they can kind of, like, ideally, I think a good boss functions as a kind of um, scaffolding, like a loose, little less layers to it. Part of it is, is providing structure that, from, from experience gives you, helps you guide people away from making terrible mistakes and towards doing kind of more productive and interesting things. Uh, another thing might be, what else? Um, the curiosity thing is another thing, but uh, you know, just, just being, a, so for, for me, my boss was my fir- was the first adult in my life that I, like in my personal life that I knew face to face that I respected and admired. So like, I mean, I had respected people from books and stuff, but like I never, you know, my family's all right, you know, it's, it's okay. And like my teachers were okay. Like no, nobody was like, wow, that that's who I want to be. You know, and while my boss had some amount of that, like we, we are different personalities and like, he's a very software engineer guy and I'm not, but like he had his life, he had his shit together in a way that I didn't. And I wanted that. And I think, yeah, when a, when a person so you should try and find some. You should try and find a boss who you admire and respect, right? And and you feel that there's something, there's some quality that they have that you don't have that you would like to have. And then you can get it by osmosis and asking questions. And like the best thing I did was just to sit next to my boss. So like I I joined the company fairly early on, and so I like I put my chair next to his thing, so I get to see him operate. You know, and like people interrupt him the whole time, all day asking him like, "Hey, boss, can we do this thing? Or what are we gonna do about that?" And like I just witnessed how he asks people questions and how he, you know, his approach to problem solving and his, 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 his leadership, right? So what is leadership? Right? Leadership is having a sense of vision about what should be done and figuring out like a guy, getting people's buy-in on some idea of what should be done and then kind of removing obstacles along the way that would help them do the work that they want to do to get there. And then you, you celebrate the wins that happen along the way, the milestones, you provide that structure. Like, like, like we want to get, get there, here are the steps along the way. We've just reached a step. Well, well done, everybody. Let's have, let's have drinks, right? Like you provide that structure for people. People get to experience victory over and over again and it feels good and there's camaraderie between team members. And like, uh, yeah, just, just witnessing that experience and witness, you know, every time somebody left the company, he would send out an email 
celebrating all of their accomplishments. So I don't. Sometimes I don't even know if like was the person fired or did they quit. Like I, I can't tell because he's he's so good at celebrating them, and so much so that I'm pretty sure that almost everyone who left. Well, it depends on the person, but like like you know, I I don't think anybody quit because they were like upset at work. Like if they quit, it's because they found another job that they wanted in a different industry. Like a, you know, so like software guys, a lot of them, they get offers from like Facebook, Google, the kind of thing that is like too good for them to refuse. But like, um, yeah, everyone who I think left because of that kind of thing. Like nobody left because like they didn't like the workplace. Everyone loved their colleagues. We still have like an alumni WhatsApp chat where we all still like each other a lot. And yeah, just being able to see that that's possible, that people can love their work environment. I mean, it's not, you know, and, and the, it's not about like work is your life or work is your family or whatever. I would say, so work is, is a challenge for you to learn project management and learn structure and learn communication skills and learn all the things that when you leave work to do whatever it is that you want to do, you should be able to apply the project management skills and whatever other skills that you learned at work to being more effective at whatever you want to do. Right. So I learned a bunch of marketing stuff because I was doing marketing at the company. Um, I learned how to do one-on-ones. So we used to have these meetings every, when the company was small, we used to meet every two weeks. When it got bigger, we'd meet every month. And we, it would be like this performance review slash um, feedback session. And he'll just ask me, you know, what did you do well? What did you do not so well? What, what are, you, what are you happy with? What are you not happy with? How's the, how's the company? How's everyone else doing? Who do you think did a good job this month? Who did you think? You know, like just kind of like getting us, like doing that communication um, exercise and then checking back. We have, we have a log like in a Google Docs and everyone will update the log with the new blog. It's just text. It's like this month, goals, objectives, things to look out for, things, to, things that we're working on, personal issues, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, you know, I feel like what I learned from that made me a more effective, you know, husband even, right? Like just how I talk to my wife even is like in terms of talk to anybody about like objectives, goals, like problem solving. And yeah, you can get all of that from a boss. You know, she's amazing. It's just, uh, you know, if you spend a lot of time at work, right? Like when you're, if you have a job, you're going to spend presumably like eight hours a day or something, six, seven hours a day at work. And so if you're going to spend so much of your time somewhere, like it should have a positive effect on your life at large, not just like, um, I, I suffer for a few hours and then I get, I suffer for several hours every day and then I get my paycheck and then I try to enjoy the weekend. Like you should find a boss that when you watch them work, you're like, huh, you know, you know, they're kind of like, that's, that's cool what he just did. Like, that's cool how he resolved that conflict. That's cool how he, you know, um, brought up the plan for next month or, you know, how he celebrated the, the customer success story or whatever. And yeah, I feel like uh, having worked for Dinesh, uh, it's probably for, for me, he was like, a, I felt like he was like a therapist who paid me, you know, and, and the problem a lot of people have with their therapists is that, that not only is it that they are paying the therapist, which is fine, you know, you're paying for a service, but like the therapist isn't really incentivized to make sure that you're making progress. Like they can try, but like if you're not making that much progress, it's not a huge deal. Like they just kind of want you to keep coming in, right? Like, like financially, like the incentives are such that it's not like, and maybe some therapists should do this. Like as your, as your life gets better, you don't pay them more, right? Like it's, they're not incentivized to make sure that they improve your life. Like they just kind of say the, 
say the nice words and you you accept or they ask you about yourself and you feel better. But you know, with my because Dinesh was my boss, he had an incent he was incentivized to get more out of me. He was incentivized to improve my performance. And to improve my performance, I had to resolve like my personal issues. Right. So he he was I mean he didn't get too involved like in like he didn't get invasive and kind of like try to get into my personal life. But like, you know, I had that healthy relationship with him that I would ask him for advice sometimes or, you know, he would ask me like casually, like when you're walking back to the office after our coffee where we have these meetings, he'd be like, oh, so how's your wife? And I'm like, oh, you know, my in-laws are like this. And he's like, oh, have you tried talking to them about that? Like, and it's just those little things. And yeah, the informal ways in which he helped me address my issues on every front and just the way he presented this problem solving ethos right this way of being like this is how i said there's no one single thing that alan watts said that is amazing it's just that he's so cheeky and funny like again there's no one single thing that dinesh says that is like i give you a piece of wisdom and like oh now you're enlightened right but it's just the way he conducted himself he was so structured like you know if somebody said if like uh so even i meet i, I meet him now every three months or so Right, and so I met him to talk about my book and my next steps and what I'm doing, and he was like, "Oh, you're writing a book. What's your book about? Like, what's the what's the problem you're trying to solve for people?" And I'm like, "Oh, you know, I'm trying to solve. It's like, what's the what's the solution? Like in one line, you know, like like he he has this way of drilling down to the most critical essence about anything, and so it's, I mean, part of it is that he doesn't like to waste time, which is great. I mean, but he doesn't he does he's not like abrasive. Like he he kind of everybody who comes in contact with him, I think, just becomes more ambitious and optimistic very naturally." Like uh, my friend Damien, he used so we, we used to work in his office building, and my friend was working at the coffee shop like one floor down. So like my boss would meet my friend very regularly to get coffee from him, and my friend was telling me like, "Hey, you're a boss, ah, you know." Like uh, I was just making small talk with him, and I think uh, I so my friend Damien was saying I asked, I was making small talk with Dinesh, and then I was just saying that you know there's this I want to I want to be I want to work in startups or I want to do something I can't remember what he said exactly I was like I want to do something something like wouldn't it be nice if I did something and then Dinesh just asked very casually like oh what's stopping you like he he, he always asks that you know if you say like oh wouldn't it be nice he'd be like what's stopping you like what do you have? what's the next step what's the first step you can take like he's just very naturally like that and like just exposure to that for like five years plus makes me think like that too. And so now I'm always like, so what, what are we doing here? You know, what are we trying to do? What's the goal? How can we, what's in the way of the goal? You know, like, do we have a goal? If you have no goal, then it's like, you know, if you don't know what your destination is, then you're never going to get there. Right? So you should always have some idea of what the goal is. You have some idea of what the next steps are. And, you know, you should try to predict how, like, you know, you should have some, you should predict what, you should practice making predictions and predict how things are going to go. And if your prediction was wrong, you should evaluate why your prediction was wrong. Like how, how far, you know, so like uh, my prediction is I will get more YouTube subscribers than Twitter followers by next year. Like that's the prediction. Like, and the prediction is probably wrong in some, like it's, it's, you know, it's wrong to some degree that I don't know yet. And I will find out. And then when I find out, let's say I, I let's say I don't make it and I'm like short by, like how, how short will I be? Will I be short by a couple of thousand subscribers? Will it be like 10,000 subscribers short? Like I, I don't know and so how do I reduce my uncertainty about that? How do I figure out, um, you know, extrapolating based on existing numbers and studying what the trajectories are for other people who have made this kind of content, what is known to do well, you know, what can I learn from? Like, like it's just that, that, that very procedural way of figuring stuff out is something that I learned from Dinesh. And uh, yeah, it's made me, um, it's a thing that when I bring it, like I've had friends kind of compliment me or, you know, say that they've benefited from that 
approach. And a lot of it is just what I, I got from Dinesh by osmosis. So like super broadly, like for the question of um, why should you, what, what can you get from a great boss? It's like, I mean, it doesn't even necessarily need to be your boss because, but the boss is significant because you are under the, the, their direct influence, right? They have power over you in a sense. They're paying your paycheck and it's, it's a very intimate, like, so even if you're, if, if there's nothing kind of a, even if you're not like personal friends, like the fact that someone is your boss, like they control your paycheck, like that, that is in a sense intimate in, in a very immediate setting context. And so that's very powerful. So it's a very powerful relationship. So it's important that you choose someone that you admire. But you can seek excellent peers in any sphere, right? You can, you can try and get a dance instructor or a martial arts instructor that you admire, yoga teacher that you admire, right? You can try and find friends that you feel bring a certain energy to your life that, that you want more of. Like you can just, you, you can do that. Like a lot of people don't realize they just kind of, they have some set of friends that they inherited from school or work or whatever and then just kind of, oh, this is my life. Like it doesn't have to be. You can always think for yourself about what you would like, how you would like to be and then you can seek people who are like that or, you know, seek, um, you know, if you feel like you're very stressed all the time and you want to be less stressed, then you might seek out a book, right? Some mindfulness meditation book. And then you seek out the communities that discuss that book. And now you're going to find friends who are also into the same thing. And then you make friends with them. And now once you have several of them on your timeline or whatever, now you feel like there is, you're investing in that idea and you have relationships with those people. It becomes more of a thing. And yeah, so it, everything is doable. Right? There's, always a, there's always a next step. There's always a move. Yeah. So that actually is a great segue to the final question or theme that I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you about. Um, so I think for me, personally, uh, like the art of socializing in groups wasn't very uh, natural for me when I was growing up. Uh, and so it took me time to like learn it. Um, there's a there's a book called How to Win Friends and Influence mm-hmm. People by Dale Carnegie, uh, mm-hmm. which really it, it's a really simple things that yeah like don't interrupt people you know like yeah. uh, kind of thing. Uh, and that was really uh, things like that were really helpful for me when I learned to talk to people in groups. Uh, I think there's also there's like an art of socializing on the internet as well, which is mm-hmm. I think a different skill set um well i'm i'm not the expert this but but i do feel like you are really good at it um mm-hmm. I, th- I think in your book you mentioned that you're a three-time core top writer you got a mm-hmm. blog post on the front page of hacker news and then you have something called reply game right yeah um so if you had to give someone a few tips on how to make friends on the internet. Mm-hmm. What would you say? I mean, okay. So the essence of good reply game or like, you know, so every utterance on the internet, right? So every Instagram post, every tweet, every, everything anybody does, it's a kind of proposal. They may or may not explicitly know what the proposal is, right? Like, you know, somebody posts a picture of, of them, you know, if they post a thirst trap, you know, they want to be validated for their appearance. Like that's obvious. But like every, every tweet has an implied proposal. Like they might not know exactly what kind of response they want, but the reason they tweeted it rather than like wrote it in their notebook or whatever is because they want an interaction from other people in some way. Whether it's just sometimes it might just be they want someone to favorite it. But there's almost always 
something that you can reply that is that captures the spirit of what proposal their utterance was, right? Like that that understands the proposal and respects the proposal and kind of jams with it and, and kind of agree. So in improv comedy, they call this like saying yes and, right? Like I, I agree with what you're saying and I build on it by, you know, and, and um, I mean, you don't li- literally need to be like a very agreeable person agreeing to everything everybody says. Like I think if you, like a dumb agreement, like yes, this is great, awesome. Like, that's, that's not a very good reply game. You know, that's kind of, you didn't really introduce anything interesting or relevant to the reply i mean you can you can do it to be supportive and i think that's good like especially once you're already friends with people like, it's nice to just throw them a, a supportive message from time to time just to kind of re like keep the relationship going but like when you want to build a relationship with someone you want to look for things that you can have something meaningful to say in response to in a way that is that um kind of builds on what they've done. Yeah, so you build on what they do. So, like, for example, like, a simple example is whenever anybody shares, like, uh, you know, let's say something about some fact. Let's say somebody says, uh, here's a fact about ducks and ducks uh, have this bill, whatever, whatever. Then, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways you can go. You can, you can say, oh, that's funny. That also reminds me of... Uh, how goose on the other hand are something else or like you know you can you can reply with a complimentary fact or you can joke maybe if, like so you need you, you do need to kind of figure out what the person is so the, the challenge is you have to pay enough attention to the person and you might need to be following them for a while or read their timeline for a bit or, or have a sense of where they hang out but so the point is you have to develop an understanding of what you think the person is interested in and what they like and then when you can give them something that they like then they will appreciate it and if you can correctly read someone's utterance proposal like multiple times, then that shared understanding is friendship. Like it, it's a kind of relationship it's a, that we both have the same understanding of something. And if, you know, if they can, can reply back. So, you know, some people call this banter, right? Like being able to riff off of each other and follow up on each other's thoughts. And um, yeah, so that's kind of the essence of, of reply, good reply game. Uh, there's a quote from Oscar Wilde that's about, uh, he says, a boar, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, B-O-O-R, like a boar, boar, <laughs> I don't know. A boar is someone who deprives you of solitude without giving you any company, right? So they show up, they say a bunch of shit, they're waste, they, 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 by saying a bunch of shit at you, they, they ask for your attention. So now you're paying attention to them. So previously you're sitting on your own and now here they are and demanding your attention but they're not giving you any company. They're just kind of using you to say whatever's on their mind, right? And that is an unpleasant experience. Whereas, you know, so the other, the inverse experience, you know, a person who's a great friend or whatever is they wouldn't deprive you of your solitude. I mean, so there's always some amount of like, but like you can be alone together potentially and they don't, it doesn't feel like they're invading your space. It doesn't feel like they are asking too much of you or kind of intruding but they share something with you that makes you feel seen, makes you feel heard, makes you feel like they understand where I'm coming from. And, um, you know, a thoughtful follow-up question is often a very great way to, to demonstrate understanding. But again, you have to, you have, it's, it's very, there's, there's no kind of one simple one-line formula for this because if there was a formula, then everyone would use it and then 
it would become a new conversational norm or something that would be awkward or whatever. So you know, sometimes people say like, oh, when someone asks you how your day is, like how should you respond? Like you can't answer that question just by, from, from there's not enough information to answer that question. It depends on how they ask it. It depends on, so if it's in, in real life, it's more obvious because you have tone of voice, you have uh, you know facial expressions and stuff. You can tell whether the person is really interested or just kind of casually tossing one out. And I mean, even then it's up to you how you want to follow up. But um, it is hard harder on Twitter and whatnot because there is, you can't read tone of voice in from from uh, text alone. So it does help to generally have assume uh, try to assume good faith and try to avoid um, like the margin of error in text online is higher than the margin of error in real life. Like in real life, if you kind of if someone says something and you re- read them wrongly and you re- you say something a bit weird. Like sometimes they just, you just stare at each other for a second and you're like, anyway, you know, you kind of change the topic or whatever. But like um, in text, like the, if you tweet something and someone else replies to the tweet, it like lingers there, right? It doesn't disappear after a while. So if, if and they might feel like they have to respond. So there's, there's all the additional dynamics about um, online reply game that is more, it does have to be a bit more thoughtful and, and restrained. Like you, it's, if you're not sure, you probably shouldn't do it, right? I mean, it depends on your on your risk profile and how willing you are to accidentally upset people potentially. Because even, even now, even though I'm good at it, like once in a while, I sometimes, I think what my most common mistake is that sometimes a friend just wants kind of affirmation and support. But like when I see someone describe their problems, I'm like, ooh, uh, let me help you solve your problem, right? And mm. Sometimes people just don't want someone to be helping, someone to be trying to solve their problem. They just want to be... So generally speaking... Y- broadly assuming that people want to be seen and affirmed um, is generally correct. I would say try to give thoughtful compliments, you know, so like um, if, if you can find an opportunity to compliment someone, like if they've written a thread, right? Or if they've written a blog post or they've written, they've put together something substantial, being specific about what exactly your favorite part is. Like, Oh, I really liked in the, third tweet or like you reply to the specific tweet like this is the this is really interesting something something because it makes me think about this is this like that that kind of feedback is always very valuable to any writer like so even with my videos when people say oh i like this thing if i see the same guy yeah if i see the same guy in like three or four different videos and he's leaving useful comments like i, I want to get to know him better i want to ask him more stuff and so then we become friends you know that, that kind of thing so it's really about it's about attention. It's about being, re- remember that the other person is also a person, right? And that they are human. They are, they get tired. They have, they want validation. They, they are curious about things. They are stressed about things, all those things. And just look for an opportunity to kind of um, brighten their day, I guess. Or It depends on your personality. Like what's your, you know, you don't want to be fake, right? So you want to figure out what your own personality is and what like, like ask yourself when you look back on your life, what have people said is good about you? Like what have your friends, and you can ask your friends, this is a good, great, great question to ask your friends so that you get to know yourself better and they get to give you the gift of their perspective. And again, you will feel closer to your friends after having that conversation. But like ask your friends like, uh, you know, what, when am I at my best? Like, you know, and maybe this is a couple of drinks in conversation rather than a, hey, good morning. Hey, tell me what you, th-, you know. Like, yeah, but like it's, it's worth thinking about. And um well, and, and, and you can f- develop friendships with people who are super comfortable asking that kind of thing right off the bat. Like I have like a bunch of friends who, like my friend Malcolm, he would love it. Like he will, op- like me and him, we openly just kind of 
Like we, that's the expectation we have in our relationship because of how we started out, which is great. But uh, yeah, so you ask people, what effect do you have on people? What's the nicest thing you've done for them or they've done for you? Like they kind of like just, it's a very in, nice thing to do anyway, to kind of share each other's perspectives on each other's uh, strengths and weaknesses if you want to go there. And um, then once you know what your strengths are, then you can be like, oh, okay, how do I use this gift, right? To make other people's lives better, right? And then how do I be a supportive presence? And, and you know, something, if you just follow people long enough, like eventually they'll be having a bad day and you can just be like, you know, heart emoji and like sad emoji, whatever. <laughs> like just kind of, that sucks, man. Like, oh, yikes. You know, I use yikes a lot. Like someone's having, someone's having a rough day, like they drop something, they, you know, something bad happened. I'm like, yikes, that sucks. You know, that, that, that small, those small things do add up as well. But I mean, that's, that's not like the essence of like great, amazing reply game. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, it does add up. People do want to just hang out as well. You know, it's not just, it's not every reply needs to be like some kind of profound insight into something. 